I I don't know. I'm conflicted over here. Uh, the prior history of infection and the finding of the hump kind of puts me in a you know a confusing situation that maybe this is related to the infection. Maybe it is not. Uh, but all the same, if uh, C3 is very dominant, more than two plus any other immunofluorescent components, the diagnosis would favor a C3 glomerular pathology. Uh, that being said, I would kind of convinced myself that maybe the treatment won't change so much. This episode of the Global Kidney Care Podcast is supported by Novartis and is on complement-mediated kidney diseases. Our host is Dr. Nick Medrell-Thomas, who is a clinical research fellow and nephrology consultant, Center for Inflammatory Disease, Department of Medicine, Imperial College of London. Great. Thank you um, for joining us, anyone who is out there. My name is um, Nick Medrell-Thomas. I'm a um, an academic uh, clinician uh, and nephrologist based at Imperial College London uh, and I have an interest in um, complement mediated kidney diseases um, particularly C3 glomerulopathy um, and, and IgA nephropathy uh, and I've had the pleasure of um, working on the um, ISN toolkit for complement mediated kidney diseases um, with doctors Gary Chan and uh, Namrata Parikh. Uh, and we have met together from different corners of the world um, to have a discussion about um, sort of the, the diagnosis and management of um, of C3 glomerulopathy in particular. So I will um, ask my sort of uh, co-collaborators to introduce themselves. So um, Gary, could I ask you to introduce yourself first and then Namrata? Thank you, Nick. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Gary Chan. Uh, I'm an adult nephrologist working in Hong Kong, uh, based at Queen Mary Hospital. And I too, I, I also have an interest in um, glomerular nephritis in general. Uh, and I have the pleasure of working on this complement mediated kidney disease project for the ISN. Uh, and I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And hi, everyone. I am Namrata Parekh. My uh, so far, training has been in India, but right now I am in Ottawa, Canada, and I am doing a fellowship in glomerular disease, which also happens to be one of my areas of interest. Very excited for today's podcast. Fantastic. So I thought it'd be useful um, just to sort of give the background and setting, uh, clinical setting in which all of us review and um, see patients with potential C3 glomerulopathy. Um, hopefully that will allow people to sort of connect with what we're saying from wherever they are in the world. So so I'm based in London and um, I work at what was previous called, previously called the Hammersmith Hospital and is now called the Imperial Renal and Transplant Centre. And it's a sort of tertiary referral centre where we um, are lucky enough to have a sort of dedicated kidney for a uh, dedicated clinic um, for the review of patients with um, C3 glomerulopathy and other complement mediated kidney diseases. So my um, interaction with these patients is uh, is often actually after a diagnosis has been made um, and to advise on uh, investigation and then kind of management strategy, particularly access of clinical trials. Um, Gary, how do you come across these patients? Um, I 
I'm in charge of the acute glomerulonephritis clinic uh, at my hospital, which is also a tertiary referral center uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, and so I see the back end of these cases. Uh, some cases are referred in and some cases are diagnosed de novo from our, the wards in our hospital themselves. So that's the uh, the capacity um, with which I see these cases in. Great. And Namasa, how about you? So, as I said, I am currently on a glomerular disease fellowship. So, the patients I see in clinic already have a biopsy and we kind of see them post-biopsy. We already know that they are C3 glomerulopathy. But prior to coming here, I've been on the other side of the spectrum when we have evaluated patients with unexplained microscopic hematuria, unexplained rise in creatinine, did a biopsy and just incidentally found them to have C3 glomerulonephritis. Okay, great. So, I, so I guess we'll we'll talk initially about um, you know how a diagnosis of C three glomerulopathy um, can be reached, um, and um, I will use a sort of uh, fictional case vignette to kind of base this discussion around. So, um, if we uh, imagine a sixteen-year-old um, female who um, is referred to us as the um, consulting nephrologist um, with a um, around a four-week history of progressive swelling of ankles and swelling around the eyes and face um, worse in the morning. Um, she's, uh, she's come to the emergency department with this uh, and has had some routine investigations that show that she has um, a significant amount of proteinuria um, with reduced serum albumin, um, but preserved uh, normal serum creatinine and preserved estimated glomerular filtration rate. Um, she's normotensive um, and the urine dipstick, in addition to a lot of protein, has shown one plus of blood. Um, there is um, no significant past medical history that um, the um, that the uh, ED doctors have reported, uh, and there is also um, no um, ongoing um, or, or, or recent uh, medications that she's been taking. So um, to switch the order around, Namrata, initially, what's your sort of broadly, um, what's your um, sort of, what would be your approach to initially investigating and, and assessing this patient? Yeah, so 16-year-old presenting with normal kidney function with proteinuria, and I'm sorry, I might have missed this, but microscopic hematuria as well? Yes. Okay, so in this age group particularly, I'd like to ask them about a prior infection history, like did they have some sore throat, some upper respiratory tract symptoms prior to that. Also, she's a young female, so also try to find out, try to rule out a urinary tract infection maybe. So that would be kind of the things I started with. Other possible etiologies would include an autoimmune pathology like SLE. Um, so yeah, just the routine glomerular workup that I would start with is do a urinalysis with a urine microscopy, preferably if I'm seeing her in clinic, maybe spin her urine myself and see if I can find any dysmorphic red blood cells. 
then look for ANA, see what our complement levels are like, and also just to complete diagnosis and all other antibodies as well, like anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies, anti-glomerular basement membrane antibodies, and so forth. Great, fantastic. So she um, had had a sore throat a couple of weeks ago. Um, this was um, a couple of weeks after going back to school after the summer holiday, uh, but this had got better um, completely. Um, there was no rash associated with it. Um, her urinary pregnancy test was negative um, and there was no, there was um, no pathogens cultured on urine uh, and urine culture and she had non-raised um, CRP and white cell counts. Lupus markers were negative um, apart from the fact that she had a low serum C3 uh, and it's actually below the uh, detectable level for the uh, for the labs, um, the other autoimmune screens were negative. Um, Gary, was there anything else you would uh, be looking for or adding to the, to the th- comprehensive list from Namrata? No, I think that's very comprehensive, and clearly the case vignette is one which um, smells very much like a, a disease of glomerular injury. Um, and I think Namrata already mentioned uh, screening for autoimmune causes, neoplastic causes, uh, infectious causes as a driver of these glomerular injuries. Uh, I think that's very, very comprehensive. Great. And uh, and what would you be your your approach with sort of, you know, low C3 and this history of a kind of upper respiratory tract infection in terms of, um, you know, timing of, of, of follow up? I, I guess what I'm asking is kind of what would you do next um, for this patient? So um, I think Nick mentioned a very, very low C3. Um, and the first thing that would spring to mind would be um, pathology within the complement system. Um, and I would be wary of um, any complement mediated kidney diseases, um, especially uh, associated with MPGN. Um, we rarely get very, very low C3 levels of other types of GN, but, but C3 can be reduced in, for example, um, infectious causes causing post-infectious GN. Um, sometimes, uh, and other causes of, for example, IgA nephropathy, you can get a reduced C3. But in very low C3, uh, cases of very, very low C3, I would be um, wary of um, uh, a C3 glomerular nephropathy. Right. And I, I don't know if I mentioned, but she was, there was no paraprotein on serum protein electrophoresis. And, and I mentioned her lupus um, serology apart from the C3 raw negative. Um, so, um, um, so uh, with us, she um, she went on to have a uh, kidney biopsy after um, a couple of weeks of um, conservative management, including VTE prophylaxis uh, and um, uh, renin-angiotensin inhibition um, uh, for her. So, um, so she had a kidney biopsy, uh, and it uh, essentially showed a membroproliferative um, glomerulonephritis pattern um, on light microscopy, um, and uh, the immunofluorescence was positive for C3 with just a tiny trace of uh, lambda light chain um, deposits on immunofluorescence, um, but with really quite dominant C3 staining. Electron microscopy um, did show deposits. Um, she had um, deposits in the 
um, subendothelial uh, and intramembranous um, regions as well as some paramesangial deposits. And she, she had kind of one subepithelial kind of hump-like deposit on the M. Um, so based on that diagnosis, uh, uh, based on that biopsy, those biopsy findings, um, uh, Namrata first, to be happy with the diagnosis. Um, I I don't know. I'm conflicted over here. Uh, the prior history of infection and the finding of the hump kind of puts me in a you know a confusing situation that maybe this is related to the infection, maybe it is not. Uh, but all the same, if uh, C three is very dominant, more than two plus any other immunofluorescent components, the diagnosis would favor a C3 glomerular pathology. Uh, that being said, I would kind of convince myself that maybe the treatment wouldn't change so much. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I would agree with you over here that it looks more like a C3 glomerular disease. Are you happy with that as well, Gary? Or are, you, are you thrown by the yeah. subepithelial hump? Yeah, so um, I think um, I would go back to basics um, when I see a pathology like this. I would classify this as a C3 dominant type of GN on a histological uh, description for which there could be other causes. I'm very wary of the previous history of infection that you've mentioned because post-infectious GN or infection-related GN can very well give this sort of picture. And the sort of sub-epithelial humps are not really pathognomonic of um, post-infectious GN itself. And you can get these um, sub-epithelial humps uh, in other entities, especially uh, with C3 G as well. So um, I, I think I think all in all, I think what we're de dealing with is a C3 dominant GN, uh, of which there can be uh, a, a variety of causes. And I would keep my mind open to these causes at the moment. Fantastic. Very nicely, concisely put. And I think, I don't know if uh, you have this experience as well, but I kind of anecdotally, I find that, um, you know, flares of um, nephrotic syndrome in C3G, whether it, whether it's a kind of de novo presentation or a follow-up, do seem to coincide with episodes of uh, infection, whether they're kind of respiratory or GI tract infection. And, you know, um, occasionally, you know, vaccination, not to, obviously not to put anyone off vaccinating, which is obviously important. But I think there is a uh, an interesting overlap in clinical presentation between, you know, what we would think of as a post-infectious GN and C3 glomerulopathy. Uh, and I know that there have been sort of uh, opinion articles written that have suggested that actually post-infectious GN and C3 glomerulopathy sit on the spectrum, on the, uh, sit at kind of different ends of the spectrum of um, complement-mediated kidney disease or, or, or complement uh, or, you know, glomerulonephritis with dominant complement deposition. Um, so um, it's interesting. I, I just out of interest, do, do either of you have access to the anti-factor B antibodies, um, either in a, in a research or clinical setting? Yeah, I think we have um, some access to the um, autoantibodies over here. Uh, and interesting, as Nick actually previously mentioned, um, I think there's been papers, especially published in the pediatric cohorts, where um, post-infectious GN is actually 
a transient form of acute C3G where there's an alternative complement dysregulation due to the presence of a C3 nephritic factor or anti B autoantibody leading on to this sort of similar presentation. So it's, I think it's, a, it's one of the challenges which we face in trying to determine what, which, which sort of disease entity we're, we're actually dealing with and therefore dictating the sort of treatment that we give to this patient. Yeah, agree. And that, that you mentioned that that leads us nicely on to at what point do you have access to or would you be suggesting this patient um, has serological and and genetic screening for um, for complement nephritic factors and um, complement genetic variants? I guess it might be slightly complicated that she's 16, but let's imagine she's uh, 19 uh, instead to sort of remove that uh, potential complication. Um, so was she an, an adult? At, at what point would you be talking to um, to her about genetic screening and looking for C3NFs? I think, I think um, first of all, um, I think in terms of the clinical presentation, I probably will give her, you know, um, given that there is a background of uh, a possible infectious course, I would probably give her a trial of conservative management of six to eight weeks um, and then reconsidering another biopsy to see if we are still dealing with the same entity for which then we can divert our attention to C3G. And given that she's so young, uh, I would delve into the family history before um, considering the genetic drivers of this disease, knowing full well that um, there are probably um, uh, comprehensive genetic testing has only demonstrated about 25% of patients with C3G to carry very rare, unique variants. Um, so it would also depend on, you know, her background, her family history, um, and whether, you know, she was um, going to go on to have transplants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Yeah, it's a very sort of uh, nuanced and slightly controversial area, isn't it? What, what, what happens where you work, Namarata, with regards to genetic analysis? I think I agree with that as well. The only indication for us to go for a genetic screening is if that the kidney function was declining or if there was a plan for kidney transplant. Uh, and we are looking at potential family members as being donors. Uh, yeah, we don't routinely screen for uh, genetic disease. Uh, availability is somewhat limited. And uh, of course, right now I am in Canada, but prior to this, I was working in India and genetic screening is not something which is easily available and also which not a majority of the population can easily afford. So for me, it would be on uh, only if considering transplant from a related family member kind of thing. Interesting. And and what if it's, um, I mean, that's really interesting. So, so for us, um, you know, when a diagnosis of a of a complement dependent kidney disease is made, we 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 do get um, genetic screening done, uh, and um, at an, a national service at the moment, um, there's a focus on kind of um, you know the the complement the genes that um, um, that express complement uh, proteins and receptors. Um, as well as we do a copy variant um, analysis for the complement factor H related proteins um, uh, in addition. But, um, but, you know, whether this is clinically useful or not is a, uh, is a, is a big question, especially as you say, in the absence of family history uh, and uh, in the, the, 
you know, and knowing that genetic studies of see-through chromerulopathy patients such as genome-wide association studies have shown of the at-risk alleles to actually being mostly in kind of HLA and non-complements related genes. So, uh, and, you know, I think the, the relevance of it is, um, at the moment, you know, not that clear as you, uh, as you say, unless there is a consideration of transplantation. Interesting, you mentioned as well transplantation from a relative. You know, you might argue that transplantation, you know, in general, would be potentially an indication for genetic screening because if there was a variant in one of the complement receptors, uh, like MCP one, you might be more confident that it wasn't going to recur in transplantation, um, for example. But um, but again, I think this is a point that I guess we will we'll understand more and more about in the future. And it'll be interesting to see what happens as things like, you know, whole exome sequencing and whole genome sequencing becomes increasingly available um, going forward. Um, Great. And, and what about, do you screen for, C, for, for C3 NEFs and C5 NEFs and would you get that done? Unfortunately, in Hong Kong at the moment, it's still very a research-based um, type uh, screening that we have. Um, I understand and cooperating with our pediatric nephrology colleagues that they have a more extensive um, screening program. Um, and they have their screening program in collaboration with, I think, uh, the Newcastle um, uh, setup uh, in UK, where they have a very big complement uh, mediated kidney disease unit uh, looking at HUS and also uh, C3G. Um, so we 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 pretty much um, ask our pediatric nephrologists for help when we need these fancy tests. Is, is that the same for you, Namrata? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think we routinely do C3 nephritic or C4 nephritic factor either. But uh, from what I understand, like what you just said, uh, you guys routinely do it where you're practicing there? We we do it. Um, but again, I mean, um, it's, it's kind of clinical usefulness. Again, I, again, I guess can be debated. I think it's... Um, it's probably a, a topic for a whole other discussion, kind of the relevance of nephritic factors. You know, I think the, the presence of a of a C3 nephritic factor or a C5 nephritic factor in combination with, you know, low serum C3 just sort of, I guess, makes one more reassured in the diagnosis. And, and I think it's probably debatable about, you know, in this case, it might make you more concerned uh, and perhaps more convinced that there's actually an underlying um, complement dysregulation disease as opposed to this being a, you know, a, a purely post-infectious phenomenon. So, you know, I think it probably does add a bit diagnostically and, and I'm glad that we have those available. That said, it doesn't change our management strategy, um, which I guess is, um, is you know, what we could get onto. I think there had been some um, case reports of trying to use things like plasma exchange for patients with um, nephritic factors, but as far as I'm aware, they haven't demonstrated uh, reliable benefit um, and it certainly doesn't influence how we uh, how we manage patients um, great so so I guess in terms of management then maybe we should um, 
talk about that. So let's say, I mean, I completely agree with what you've been saying about the the, the time of conservative treatment. If perhaps, um, if there is a, you know, particularly if there's stable kidney function and perhaps it's a question of a post-infectious event. But let's say that you've seen the patient's uh, patient two or three months later uh, and essentially they're still nephrotic. Um, they've still got preserved um, EGFR, um, but there is an ongoing nephrosis um, um, despite um initial conservative management so um maybe we start with um namrasa what would your kind of um management and treatment considerations um for a patient like this and options i guess uh since this patient is quite young we are in a different situation but for older patients particularly who are 50 years and above i would always like to rule out an underlying paraproteinemia make sure we're not dealing with something like that and uh, i think the most effective therapy the evidence that we have so far is just go up on the ras blockade if you're going there giving them say for example perindopril go as high as you can give them the highest possible dose provided they're maintaining blood pressures and the kidney function is not going off too much. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of role for immunosuppression in the form of steroids or other routinely drugs, uh, used drugs. I know we have tried them, but not found them to be so effective. I think the best bet here would unfortunately be a colizumab and we have very limited availability of that particular drug. I don't know, how how has your experience been, Nick and Gary, with these drugs? Gary, why don't you go ahead? What, what would be your treatment considerations? And yeah, what's yeah. your thought? What have your experience with eculizumab, I guess? Um, so I think before we go on to eculizumab, I think I think we we probably, as a, as a, as a group and uh, on the whole uh, worldwide, have uh, very little experience with eculizumab in C3G. We have more of more experience with um, other complement mediated diseases, especially for example HUS. Um, and in terms of treatment, I think I think we really have to stress that um, we don't have all that much data on how we should be treating this disease. Um, and what we have uh, are very disparate outcomes in terms of the different studies because of the heterogeneity of the cohorts that we recruited in the past when we hadn't really delineated the drivers of this disease. So the patients that we recruited for these studies had all sorts of um, underlying drivers. Some had genetic drivers, some had infectious drivers. They had different um, complement and pathway abnormalities. Um, and so I think the, the outcomes of these diseases were um, very, very different uh, in terms of the drugs and the treatments we gave. Having said that, I think um, in, if if there was a deteriorating renal function and quite significant proteinuria and some very poor prognostic factors, I think that the Spanish group actually published some data on using cortical steroids and MMF showing reasonable outcomes in that group. Um, so I think for all patients uh, that I manage uh, with this entity, we would optimize the blood pressure control as with any sort of GN, uh, manage all their cardiovascular morbidities and mortalities. For patients with more moderate disease, um, more proteinuria and moderate inflammation possibly on the renal biopsy and possibly renal deterioration, I think I would use steroid and MMF. And for very, very severe disease, I might, might ramp that up into you know a pulse methyl pred uh, uh, initially uh, and save echolizumab really for um, kind of last ditch effort um, if they're not responding to anything. But I think 
we all, we all have a consensus now that if, if the disease is not responding to anything, I think the best thing we could do is probably enter the patients into a trial, um, which uh, would be, uh, and this sort of kind of, um, this framework would be how I go about managing my patients with C3G. Great. That's a, that's a great summary from both of you. Thanks. And, and I would, I guess, add to that by, by saying, yeah, I completely agree that probably the best data we have to date is from the Spanish group and on the combination of MMF and prednis alone. But, you know, as you, as you nicely pointed out, that study is um, limited by it being a cohort study uh, and uh, with all the potential influences on interpreting the results from that. Uh, I should just mention that the, at this point that the these things are nicely summarized um, in the most recent K-DIGO glomerular disease guidelines where they kind of mention key trials and provide the references if anybody is interested in looking them up. Uh, and certainly I say that don't take anything that I say as rule, go look it up <laughs> with the K-DIGO guidelines. But um, yeah, so in terms of the, the things to add, um, so where we work, I think one of the, where I work, one of the lucky things is that we are a kind of clinical trial center for, um, therapeutic clinical trials. So our approach would be that if we, if we have, um, a patient with, um, C3 glomerulopathy and there's ongoing proteinuria despite conservative, um, and supportive management, that my first line is to try to enroll them into a clinical trial. And we'll try to do that early. Uh, and we'll try to do that before um, MMF or prednisolone. And obviously that's kind of, you know, there are a number of considerations. For example, is the clinical trial a placebo-controlled trial? And so there's a risk that they will receive no immunomodulation. Um, is that going to be acceptable for our patient, both from us and for them? And there's obviously a whole host of things to think about. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm assuming for simple, for the for, for ease that the, our case is, a, is an adult, <laughs> um, which makes things more straightforward. But um, we would try to enroll them and we ha have been an enrolling centre for phase two and phase three clinical trials um, of uh, factor B inhibitor and um uh, and a kind of um c3 inhibitor for this so so we were involved in the trials of iptacapan which is an anti-factor b small molecule inhibitor um produced by novartis uh, and has been in phase two and phase three trials phase two um, results have been published in abstract form uh, and are available in the public domain. And we were uh, also a centre trying to enrol patients into phase two and an upcoming phase two trials of PEG's satacope plan, um, which is a subcutaneous um, kind of uh, comp statin-like anti-C3 agent um, produced by Apellis. So um, so that's our approach. Uh, and if patients do not meet the inclusion criteria, then we're looking at, at MMF with and without steroids, as Gary mentioned. And for us in the UK, the use of eculizumab is uh, restricted. So I know from speaking to, to colleagues in kind of Europe and other parts of the world, I think you know, in many places, eculizumab might be considered if there was, you know, a loss of inflammation and perhaps if there was significant crescentic change on the kidney biopsy, uh, a significant amount of endocapillary hypercellularity, for example, and deteriorating kidney function. But in the UK, uh, its use is limited actually to C3G recurrence in a transplant with crescents um, and with um, with deteriorating kidney function in terms of loss of EGFR. 
So, um, so for me personally, it's uh, limited as a treatment option, and I think um, that that actually, as you mentioned, Gary, is you know not unreasonable given the kind of um, unconvincing nature of the data for eculizumab in C3G. Um, and as an aside, I think perhaps the lack of effectiveness of eculizumab in C3G is not that surprising given that it's an agent that inhibits the terminal pathway uh, and we think that it's the kind of alternative pathway that is pathogenic in, in you know, in this rare condition. So, um, so I guess then maybe the the final thing is is whether it might be nice just to speculate on um, whether and how you think treatment options might change in the future um, for patients. Um, I guess in general and perhaps specifically where where you work. So is there is there any change on the horizon? Perhaps why don't you go first, Gary? I think um, we're moving very, very fast into an area where we're, we're actually using precision-based medicine. We're actually having more tools um, uh, coming out from research to find and delineate the exact um, error where, of which we're dealing with in the complement pathway. And all these um, new treatments that previously Nick has just mentioned are dealing with the complement pathway uh, at various different sites. So I think we're moving into an era where we're actually delineating where the defect is and actually aiming and targeting that defect with specific drugs, be it Danicopan or Pegsectopec, I can never pronounce that word. Um, uh, or, or, uh, and, and other, yeah. Yes, and, and other complement uh, uh, inhibition uh, therapies. So I think that's where we're moving uh, into very, very precision-based um, treatments. Now, Marata, what do you uh, what, what do you think the future looks like for uh, C3G patients where where you work? Uh, I think I agree with both of you guys as well. Uh, the interesting thing about C3 dominant glomerulonephritis is that it's a very new kid on the block kind of thing. We only just recently realized that it's an entity and you know, started developing approaches to target this particular disease. And it's very exciting to know that uh, people all around the world are engaged in various clinical trials. So I think the future is bright and promising. And as Gary mentioned, more targeted approaches certainly seem to be on the horizon. Yeah, great. And I and I wonder, um, you know, whether we'll see that for other glomerular diseases as well. Uh, I'm sure you guys are, are aware, but, you know, for the listeners, there are a, a large number of um, clinical trials of therapeutic complement inhibitors in a range of glomerular diseases currently underway. I think when I last checked, for example, in IgA nephropathy, I think there are 10 um, therapeutic clinical trials of complement inhibitors um, at various phases and underway um, with similar numbers, I'm sure, in things like membranous nephropathy and lupus nephritis. Uh, and of course, there has been the recent um, demonstration of effectiveness of vacapan, uh, a C5A receptor antagonist in anchor-associated vasculitis, um, I think demonstrating the um, potential effectiveness and applicability to these complement inhibitors for kind of a, a range of diseases that we might not have considered even to be really complement driven, uh, principally in their pathogene pathogenesis. Um, great. I guess um, 
I don't know if you guys had anything else to, any other comments or things to to add at this point? Namrasa, do you want to go first? Uh, no, no. I think uh, I think that was a really, you know, stimulating discussion. Interesting to know that we are uh, going forward with research in this direction. Uh, but just as you have, uh, as you both have more experience than me in this field, I'd like to know what your experience is regarding prevalence. How often would you see a case of C3 disease. Uh, I definitely, uh, it's it's rare for us. Um, I think even more so in the past because we just didn't have that knowledge. Uh, and only in the last kind of decade have we really delineated, you know, the all, all the different types of MPGN um, and how we can differentiate it using the immunofluorescence on biopsy. Um, and uh, so definitely very rare for us. Um, and, and just let me labor on the point of, you know, um, the immunofluorescence. I mean, the the diagnosis of um, C3G based on this Im- immunofluorescence um, uh, of, an, of, of, a, of a biopsy, which has MPGM pattern on light microscopy, really depends on uh, some subjective uh, interpretation um, of how C3 is two orders of magnitude greater than any other immunoreactant. Um, and this, I think this two orders of uh, magnitude is really uh, a sensitivity cutoff. You know, um, we could well use three orders of magnitude or uh, one order of magnitude. And I think using two orders of magnitude would give, you know, a, a sensitivity of probably 90% in this sort of thing. But just to be aware that, you know, um, immunoglobulins can be trapped and detected on immunofluorescent staining, um, for which we need to use sort of kind of pronase digested techniques sometimes. And so kind of close collaboration with our histopathologist is really, really important uh, in diagnosing this disease. Uh, and finally, I think quite a lot of proportion of um, C3G uh, and immune complex GN, which would be the varieties where you can detect both immunoglobulins and C3 on, on, on the immunofluorescence, they kind of shift and change and uh, shift from one, one entity to the other. Um, and so I think diagnosing the disease is actually fairly difficult. And therefore, we see it quite rarely as well uh, due to this these facts. What about you, Namrata? Uh, yeah, I agree. We really don't encounter this disease too often. But when you are focused on glomerular disease, when you see only glomerular disease patients, definitely you see the numbers increasing uh, as you see patients day by day, which kind of makes me wonder, was this uh, something that we missed in the past? Like we didn't even know this was a disease entity. Maybe the actual prevalence is much more than what we know to be. But yeah, I agree with what you have to say as well. Uh, Nick, what's your experience been like? Yeah, it's rare. You know, I mean, it's what's documented prevalence is like what two per million or something. But, but I, you know, I think I completely, you know, I think Gary's point of the um, ability for conditions to sort of change in terms of morphology is is really important and interesting. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm sort of a supporter of repeat biopsies if it's clinically indicated. Uh, and I think that uh, that can provide a lot of insight, particularly if an initial biopsy has been triggered by something like an infectious event. Um, and then, you, you know, you might expect the immunoglobulin deposition to, to vary with and without those kind of phenomenon. Uh, and I guess that's, I hope that that's something that we'll learn more about um, as kind of, you know, natural history studies in these conditions become, um, you know, become better recognised. 
Um, in terms of the prevalence, you know, I think, but you know, I guess sort of pure C3G, if you kind of want to call it that, is is very rare. What I think we will have to get to grips with is um, how we manage what is much more common, I suspect, which is sort of glomerular diseases in which complement deregulation plays a pathological role, although there may also be other factors like a circulating paraprotein or um, immunoglobulin deposition, um, but without, uh, you know, an obvious autoimmune under underlying um, disease. Uh, and, you know, whether these diseases are actually um, dependent on complement activation for their pathogenesis or not, and whether they should be treated with complement inhibitors, I think is a big question for the future. And I would speculate is likely to make actually the use of therapeutic complement inhibitors, um, you know, more widespread than it might, you know, currently appear. Uh, which is why I think, in general, I would encourage everyone to, um, to you know, try to understand and read up about the complement system and its deregulation in general. I think it's going to play an important part in clinical nephrology in the future. Agree. Yeah, and we've worked on some really nice infographics and, uh, you know, there's a lot on the website if you log on to the ISN Complement Toolkit toolkit website. So I encourage everyone who's listening to this podcast to have a look and give us some feedback about what you think. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. That was fun.